Hi there, and welcome to Planet Noun, where people, places, things, and ideas are all up for grabs. Now, when I was younger, say in middle and high school, I figured history was only a subject bound in thick, heavy, boring books I hauled home to study. It took some time for me to notice that history is being made all around me every second, every single day. Now, maybe this explains my attraction to journalism, which has been described as history's rough draft. For good or for ill, we're all making his and her and their stories, making our marks on the lives of those in our sphere. Who knows, we may never make history book pages. Some of us will, some of us won't. But maybe our influence will ripple through the lives of those whose names are enshrined there. I can't help but think of Oprah Winfrey. She wanted to be a fourth grade teacher. And I think on one or maybe more of her shows, she brought her fourth grade teacher on, you know, to honor her and to talk about how she wanted to be like her. Now, I could not tell you the fourth grade teacher's name, but that woman's influence has definitely rippled through Oprah's life. Mrs. Duncan, yeah, I went and Googled it. Mrs. Duncan is an example of someone who might not be very well known, whose name is not on everyone's lips around the world, but she definitely had that ripple effect. No matter what, history is being made all around us, has been made all around us, and some of it is hiding in plain sight. Now, that's how I met my next guest as part of a work assignment at a cemetery where things were hidden in plain sight. Let's get to our talk with Michelle C. Thomas, founder of the Loudoun Freedom Center in Lansdowne, Virginia. That's in Northern Virginia, in Loudoun County, right across the Potomac River from D.C. and from Maryland. It's also right across from West Virginia, Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, which is right where the Shenandoah and Potomac Rivers meet. Back to Loudoun County. It's about 45 minutes to an hour's drive from Washington, D.C., still part of the DMV, the D.C. metro area. Now, back in the day, most folks were about that agrarian life in Loudoun County, and most black folks were forced to be about that enslaved life. I say most because there were some free black folks in Loudoun County. But that's another story for another day. Now, these days, Loudoun County, Virginia, has the distinction of topping the list of highest income counties in the United States. Now, like many places, it's a county rich with history, some tidbits known, other components emerging, which is why I ended up crossing a busy route with a diverse group of people one afternoon, crunching over gravel into what looked like some nondescript woods. But there was more, more than I could see. And that more is what led to the Loudoun Freedom Center's creation. Now let's get the story with founder Michelle C. Thomas. And if you hear some background noise here and there, some folks talking, a little bit of wind in the background, Pastor Thomas was outside when she was interviewing, and, you know, the wind kicked up here and there. But that's enough intro. Here's Michelle C. Thomas of the Loudoun Freedom Center. I'm the senior pastor and founder of Holy and Whole Life Changing Ministries. And maybe close to four years ago, we were endeavoring to build a church in Lansdowne. As you know, Lansdowne is a historic community. It is a five-star resort community that was a former plantation. And in Lansdowne, there's absolutely no historic markings. Most people, even those that have houses and have purchased and are longtime residents, don't know the African-American history of Lansdowne. We were endeavoring to build a church, Holy and Whole, and we are predominantly an African-American church. And 
Lansdowne is what you would call a pre-planned community. So, you know, the developers had already apportioned a piece of land for a church, the schools, elementary, middle, high school, all those amenities, hospital, town center with grocery store and everything that you can think of is already apportioned in Lansdowne. And so uh, most of Lansdowne is all built out except for no one has built the church. And so our church has endeavored to purchase a piece of land. We did a feasibility study that uncovered a lot of this history of enslavement. And of course, my next concern after we realized that Lansdowne was a former slave plantation called Colton, we wanted to know where the enslaved was buried because, you know, as we were going to build this church, we certainly didn't want to build on an African burial ground. And that is really how the search began to find out where the enslaved were buried. We could not find the cemetery in Lansdowne, but we did find the adjacent cemetery, the adjacent cemetery of the, what I would call sister plantation, which is Belmont Country Club today. So Lansdowne, which is the former Colton Plantation, was owned by a cousin, and that cousin's name was a famous cousin, actually, Colonel Thomas Lutwell Lee. And Colonel Thomas Lutwell Lee was cousins to Robert E. Lee, General Robert E. Lee. Mm -hmm. So it is the famous Lee family plantations. And across the street from Lansdowne was another cousin. His name was Ludwell Lee. Ludwell Lee was the aide-de-camp to Lafayette, Marquise Lafayette, General Lafayette. He also, he was the son of Richard Henry Lee, which was one of the original signers of the Declaration of Independence. So this history that we have in Lansdowne is a rich American history, and our church discovered it or rediscover it as we were endeavoring to build our sanctuary. Okay, and I like how you said rich American history because African-American history is American history. It is. Uh, you know, oftentimes people become disenfranchised and they actually give up because there's such disinterest in African-American history. And that's because we've not incorporated the African-American history into the American history. But as you learn and rediscover, you'll find out that we are bound tightly together by shared history. And so there's really no way that we can unbind our history at this point. And so this is part of the path that led to the annual commemoration or remembrance at the Belmont Slave Cemetery. And so why was it important to to make sure to mark that once you found the cemetery, you know, once all the researchers found the cemetery and found out where where these folks were buried. Why is it important to mark and remember every single year? It's important because he who forgets his history is destined to repeat it. And uh, that is a famous saying. I heard it first by Dr. Benjamin E. Mays when I was in fifth grade, actually. But that stuck with me. I've carried that forward. I realized that history is important. And the fact that we don't know this history is actually scary to me because this history of plantation ownership and wealth and farming, that history is the infrastructure in which 
our wealth is built in Loudoun County. So Loudoun County is the richest county in the nation or the wealthiest county in the, in the nation. And so to not understand that this wealth was built and the wealth of the country was actually built on the back of slaves or the enslaved who labored without pay and who did not enjoy any of the accoutrements of building this wealth. That story has to be told. They are the national heroes. They are Americans' unsung heroes. When did this type of preservation work, making sure that this type of American history, untold history, is preserved? Did you have that interest before starting to figure out how to build a church in Lansdowne? No. Well, you know what? I grew up in Atlanta, right? So I would have to tell you, honestly, Liz, I was shaped by the civil rights leaders, right? So you have the late Dr. Martin Luther King, his wife, Coretta, and you have Julian Bunn. You have in Atlanta, you have John Lewis, um, you know, you have all of the great civil rights leaders that shaped and and actually we went to school with the kids of these civil rights leaders. So oh, wow. we were they were accessible to us. So you're talking about Andrew Young and Maynard Jackson. And so we knew these civil rights leaders and pioneers personally, and they helped to shape how we saw the world and how we told our story. So from a child, I I had the idea that he who tells the story runs the world, basically. Uh And so when I got here to Virginia and I began to work in IT, obviously there's a story there because I was 27 years old when I retired. And, you know, there's a fascinating story of of African-American women in IT doing amazing things. But that didn't bring out what was inside of me. What was inside of me that was planted inside of me from a child came out when I started doing the work much like our earlier mentors from the civil rights. And that is that preservation work. So once I uncovered the history, there was no question as to what must be done next. I was raised to understand what must be done next. And now that is exactly what you were doing. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Doing. So I give you a quick little uh, story. And you have to know this. Oh, okay. So uh, I want to see if you remember this. So the first time you came out to the reef laying ceremony, do you remember that? Uh huh. Okay. I took you around the backside of a CVS building where we were lining up. Do you remember that? Yes. And the statues. Okay. And I showed you the <laughs> statue mm-hmm. portrait um, of General Robert E. Lee. And I said, this is the type of subtlety, the subtle racism that we are fighting right on the uh, former plantation. How, you know, disrespectful do you have to be to put that here? And to think that people pass that to get their medicines, and I must have passed it, you know, hundreds of times to get medicine and go into CVS and spend my money. But we have normalized racist images. We have normalized those images of Confederacy. And, and, and so I stopped paying attention to obviously. But the time where I became aware with all of this preservation, that portrait that I had passed, you know, hundreds of times bothered me. If you go back there today, it's not there. This is the effect that this work, preservation work has on the community, where there be some people in the community that takes longer to get it. And so you have to work with them. You have to negotiate. You have to do more education. But then there's other people in the community that know it's wrong and you don't have to tell them two times. They'll just dynamically adjust. 
So how does Pastor Thomas communicate that necessity, the urgency of protecting this heretofore unknown tract of history? Well, Pastor Thomas says it's all about the assignment. I traveled in mostly Christian circles growing up, and I heard a ton about seeking God's will for my life and finding my purpose and all that stuff. As an adult, I started hearing more folks talk about people discovering their assignment. And yes, I did do the air quotes there. Thomas says that's where her urgency originates. So what's it like to try and convey that to others? Well, let's get an answer. Pastor Michelle Thomas, founder and executive director of the Loudoun Freedom Center. Quite honestly, some people get it who are Caucasian and some people don't. And sadly, some people get it who's Black and some people don't. And so what you find is that you have to be fixed on the assignment versus the response of people. In other words, when you look at the crowd and you look at their faces and you see that they don't understand and they're not connecting, that does not invalidate your work. So you stay focused on the assignment. If the assignment is to preserve, then go ahead and do it. You don't need permission of others. They'll come along eventually. And I give you an example. A sense of desperation, a sense of disgust, frustration, you will hear all of those sentiments from the letter from the Birmingham jail with Dr. Martin Luther King. And he's writing and he's talking about the apathy of people, the apathy of pastors to understand the necessity and the fierce urgency of now. And he talks about, you know, those pastors and those African-Americans that just don't get it. And he talked about those good white Christians that just don't get it. And reading his work, really blessed me because I realized that 80% of the people around him during that time thought he was a troublemaker, yet he's heralded as a hero now. And so oftentimes people will misunderstand you before they understand your assignment and you have to be okay with that. So I keep focused on my assignment. Okay. So for anyone out there who is concerned that they may or may not be walking a path that they should be if you have the assignment and by the way michelle thomas is pastor michelle thomas amen she just preached a word (laughs) you have to keep focused yeah there's a story in acts that talked about a deacon a brand new deacon actually his name was stephen and stephen was you know one of these deacons that the apostles assigned to these churches to take care of the widows and the elderly and this and the other well he actually was stoned to death Mm -hmm. and they said this is the words of the bible they said that as stephen was being stoned to death he kept his eyes gazed on heaven and literally i have taken that that thing to heart. And so it doesn't matter what the newspapers write. It doesn't matter how many people may misconstrue what I'm doing. It doesn't matter if anybody says it's for some sort of selfish gain. It doesn't matter. I know the truth. I know exactly why I'm doing it. It must get done. And so I keep my eyes fixed on heaven because this is really what God wants to do. This is his work, not mine. I could have never uncovered all of this and had the success that God has given me. This is his work. So this is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in my eyes. 
So that there was an allusion to a Bible verse, uh, Psalm chapter 118, verse 23, a chapter full of praise, thanks to God for success, no matter what the obstacle. One thing fascinates me when it comes to uncovering cemeteries for the enslaved in the United States. Now, number one, I can't help but wonder if some direct or cousin's ancestors' remains are there. Can't help but have that flit through my mind since... At this point, I can only trace my ancestors back a few generations. So here's the thing that fascinates me as a journalist. The possible stories. What were these folks like? How can we find out about their daily lives, their favorite foods? Will we ever know that much about them? Did they have time for any artistic pursuits while mired in systemic oppression? Because, you know, creativity will find a way, just like freedom. And that was one of my questions. How do you start hearing about some of the stories? Because I, I, one of the questions I had is I was wondering if you were from the area, if you were from outside of the area, but you, you're a, an area transplant, a DMV area transplant. And I remember at the first wreath laying where I was, there was a gentleman, and I forget his name. I yes, A.D. Carter, Alfred Carter. Yes, is that the one? I think he was the one who whose mom would bring him every single year to visit a grave of Absolutely. someone named Absolutely. Ned. And if you so, can go ahead and tell that story. The day that you came to that first cemetery, there was a gentleman, wonderful man. He actually told me a story. He waited till the ceremony was over. He came up to me. He says, oh, Pastor Michelle, you know, I want to tell you the, the history about my family in this cemetery. And he says, you know, my great grandmother used to send me here to see Ned. And Ned was, they told me, was my great, great grandfather. And his grandmother used to take him. His mother used to take him. And they used to bring flowers and all of that. And he literally took me over to where this grave was. And immediately I know it was true because we had just mapped the cemetery and we took all of the flags out of the cemetery, which would normally mark the depressions, because we didn't want anybody to know where the actual graves were in case they would vandalize. And so we took them out. There's no way he could have known exactly where a depression was. And he took me right to it. And I knew that that was a grave because that was one of the ones that I marked personally. So that was the only story that we have. And it wasn't much information. This is what he told me. He said, you know, I didn't get to ask a whole bunch of questions because back then kids were seen and not heard. Mm -hmm. I said, even in my time, kids were seen and not heard. So he doesn't know if it was a blood, you know, relative, if it was an uncle Ned that somebody called a grandfather, they didn't know, but they knew that they would come back there to pay homage and honor uh, Mr. Ned. I subsequently, I had done bio sketches for all of the enslaved. And yes. so the research that I found was research, not of conjecture, but of documented facts. And so that is why I'm really excited about the research we're doing, because we get to tell the story in a way that is one, authentic and true. So one, we want the authentic truth. And number two, we just want to know the absolute truth. And the only way that we could find that, because they no one wrote about the enslaved, they would write about them in a passive type of writing. So literally you're tracing your ancestors through the writing of wills, deeds, judgments, and that's where you find the most about them. So wills, deeds, judgments, it's amazing that you can 
find out so much about a person's life through the primary source documents. So say for instance, we find the names of 17 enslaved at Colton. We find their names because they are in included in a bill of sale. So the last owner of Colton Plantation was the wife of Colonel Ludwell Lee, Thomas Ludwell Lee. Her name was Fanny Carter Lee. She actually sold the enslaved to a gentleman in Stafford County. So not only do we have her bill of sales, we also have his inventory list, uh, William Brandt, where he took those slaves into his inventory. When he took those slaves into his inventory, you can then trace even further. Did he sell them after a while? Did he will them to other people? So the way that you can explore goes on and on. My grandchildren will still be finding things, possibly new information about the enslaved. The names, you know, the whole thing struck many chords within me. And the names, you are putting names to the people, these unsung heroes that lived on on these sister plantations. So I remember the first year I got the name Bridget. And I don't have that paper anymore. But who made the the little men and the little women with the name? Oh, that was Dominion High School. So Dominion High School this year, the woodshop teacher, I guess it's called tech ed teacher, Mm -hmm. he made actual little wooden figures. They were men and women, and we put names to them. And that was just absolutely amazing. So the reason why I got that idea is because when you had come in times past, you see how you said that I don't have the little paper anymore. Mm -hmm. So lots of people kept the paper and some people just, you know, it got missing. However, you know, they lost the paper, but I wanted to give them something more permanent because after I heard a couple of stories, it just kind of drove me to that. So one lady called and said, Hey, Pastor Michelle, I just voted today. And I want you to know that I took the name of the enslaved person in there with me. And so I thought, I don't ever want her to be without that person again. So I wanted to make it a little bit more permanent. Of course, they could still lose it, but you don't have to worry about, you know, the things you have to worry about with the paper. So yeah, it's important, right? They can leave that as an heirloom, you know, to their children. It would be interesting at the next event to see how many people actually kept theirs. Because I'll tell you, Pastor Thomas, I keep old Jim in my purse with me. Wherever no I go. way. You got old Jim. I See, have old Jim. This is exactly what I'm talking about. So what's in a name? A rose by any other name would still smell as sweet. Thank you, William Shakespeare, for that. Does that mean a long-gone enslaved person's name still reeks of oppression? Does it smell of hope? Or nothing at all? I guess that depends on who you ask. There are a couple of names that mean something to me in relationship to this project. The names of two folks who were enslaved on these plantations, Bridget and Old Jim. I don't know much about them except that they existed without their human rights intact. What's in a name? Honey, if you ask me, a whole lot. More with Michelle Thomas of the Loudoun Freedom Center and the work to preserve a burial ground for the enslaved that was hidden in plain sight for such a long time. Last year on November the 9th, I was actually given the deed 
for the Belmont Slave Cemetery. The very next thing that I did on that Monday morning was I went back to the courthouse and I said, hey guys, I want to change the name of this cemetery. It would no longer be referred to as the Belmont Slave Cemetery because it is impossible for us to have ever been slaves. Slavery is an institution. We can't be a school. We can't be a church. We are human beings. We've always been human. And so we were enslaved, right? And so we will change it now to the African-American burial ground for the enslaved at Belmont. And you also talk about the importance of language, using the language that we use to refer to the enslaved. I think that was one of our first conversations as well. Exactly. We have to change our language because with our language change turns our ideas about ourselves. What we say out of our mouth also confirms our actions. And so when we continuously call ourselves slaves or we allow ourselves to be referred to as slaves, that substantiates someone else's definition or lie that's been perpetrated that we weren't human and we're less than, and we were not. So humanizing, the work that the center, you and the center are doing to humanize, humanize mm-hmm. folks, that's what I, That's one thing that I think about. Every time I see old Jim, I see old Jim on a daily basis. Right. Oh my gosh, <laughs> you I know? love that. And it will be interesting to see how many other people do something similar. And every time I look at the figure with old Jim's name etched on it, you know, it's a reminder to me. And maybe someone else might get a different sense of responsibility or have a different thought. But it's a reminder to me that, you know what, I need to use the opportunities that are afforded to me because old Jim did not have the same opportunities. Absolutely. So I give you an example. So we were digging the 400 foot trail that is going to guide people around the African-American burial ground. uh, The Eagle Scout Project. (laughs) The Eagle Scout Project. So we dug this 400 foot trail. When we were digging the trail, I had my pearls on and they were like, Pastor Michelle, what are you doing out here in these pearls? Are you going to dig? And I said, absolutely. However, my ancestors were not able to hold or to own anything of value. That doesn't mean that they weren't valuable, but they weren't able to legally own anything of value. And so when I come out here, I wanted to remind them they can wear pearls, but because of their service, I can wear pearls. I also want to remind them that there's nothing too good for them. There's absolutely nothing too good for them. So I have no problems digging dirt in my pearls because there's nothing too good for them. There's no extent which I will not go to to honor them. Wow. And what are some of the other ways that um, that you're planning to honor them? I know, I think there's a, a program with elementary schools. At the Loudoun Freedom Center, we take a multi disciplinary STEM approach to understanding history. And so we have involved different disciplines inside the school and not just history. The way equity works and the way equality works is you cannot stay in the confines of history and expect to make the broad changes that we need to make as a society. We want to affect the curriculum of Loudoun County to sort of bring in equity in terms of the way that we teach African-American history and the way that we infuse African-American history and images into the total curriculum for Loudoun County. And so once we collect data and find out, is this really affecting change? Do minority kids feel more engaged? Do they have a better outlook? Are they more engaged in history? Because, you know, some people see history as so boring and African 
African-Americans in particular are disengaged with history because it makes them the poor guy, the slave, you know, it doesn't talk about the enslavement era from a standpoint where this was wrong. You know, it speaks about the enslavement as if this was necessary for us to build this country. It's never necessary for you to enslave anybody or be mean to anybody in order for you to be successful. That is that is the narrative. That is the false narrative that have been perpetuated. And that's why we see white privilege. And that's why we see people that don't see others because they feel that it was necessary. It was their God given right you know, to take advantage of another race. And that's wrong. And we need to stop teaching history like that. How are you going to figure that out or quantify what the changes in what children are feeling or or experiencing or their engagement? So that's pretty easy to do, right? So I actually have a child that's in the fourth grade, Anna. And I heard before my daughter got in the fourth grade, I heard other black parents say, oh, Lord, Jesus, you better watch it, Pastor Michelle. You know, fourth grade is when they start teaching Virginia history. And so it is that time where the kids start to have some adverse reactions, right? Adverse reactions like? Adverse reactions like they start to play and kids naturally try to emulate what they've just learned. So kids would go out on the playground and they'll say, okay, will you be a plantation owner or you be the slave? And guess who always ends up being the slave, right? right? So, and it just makes them feel bad. It literally happened to my kid this year. And even though people had warned me, I just thought maybe because I'm leading this effort that this certainly wouldn't happen to my daughter. This school certainly wouldn't have the insensitivity not to protect my child from this, knowing that I'm leading this effort. And I was wrong. You know, my daughter came home crying, just like many other Black daughters saying, they made me a slave today, mommy, or they told me I had to be a slave or I couldn't play this game. And it's unfortunate. And so what happens is when you teach children the fundamentals of enslavement from a colonizational type, premise where they understand that this country was built by the enslaved labor. They understood that this country enslaved people, built the country, and never allowed them to participate in any of the the wealth of this country. People know that's wrong. Children know that's wrong. I'll give you an example. So as we were talking about different projects and I worked with these fourth graders, we got to a group that specific job was to do mapping. So this group was mapping in GIS and their job is to map the boundaries of Belmont. Their job also is to map out the trail that we were building and then to point out the significant features of this trail and then write a little short story about it. After I gave the assignment over to the group, one of the questions that this kid asked me, which was just unbelievable. He said, Pastor Michelle, can I ask you, how would they, how would we get the credit for this? And I thought, what? He said, how are they going to know that we did this work? And I said, because we're going to say that on the historic marker, Mm -hmm. on the historic marker, we're going to give the information about the enslaved and all the significant people that you're remembering and places that you're remembering back here. We're going to give that history, but we're also going to say that students from fourth grade in the year put this together. 
we will give you guys the credit. Wow. And were so they concerned I, about being erased. Yes, they are wow. concerned about being erased. And so if they could think about that at this level, when we start teaching them how this history is erased and hidden from us, they understand it, that that's wrong because they want their work to be recorded. They understand that they're children and they can't get paid for it. But they're like, you better give me credit some kind of way. <laughs> Because this is, this is hard work. It's hard work. And people, and so, it, it, it seems like human beings want to be remembered. You always talk about legacy, what you're going to leave behind. Because, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, we'll all mm-hmm. leave this place sooner or later. Mm-hmm. Um, what will you leave behind? What will you leave in your wake? Will you leave a bunch of garbage and destruction? Or will you leave things better than what, than how you found them? And for kids to want that, and for kids to understand that, to me, I thought these kids are really operating on a very high level. Mm -hmm. And so they will not subscribe to these ideologies of slavery. They're not going to subscribe to that. If you want to change a nation, start with the kids. And the Eagle Scouts that are also involved. I met a gentleman from the uh, All Dulles Area Muslim Society. Yes. Adams. One of the things I did not know, I didn't realize how many of the people who were brought over from Africa in slave ships, a good percentage of them were 30%. 30%. That is probably the most eye-opening thing that I have found in this research, that 30% of all Africans brought over to America and enslaved were Muslims. And so when we decided how we would do our ceremonies, I wanted to be true to that. And so I reached out to the Adams Center to say, hey, can we include you guys? Because, you know, I can't make the Muslims Christians. Mm -hmm. And if that was their heritage, I didn't want them to lose that. And so in the way we honor people is by being authentic. Mm -hmm. That is the highest form of honoring. And so even as a Christian pastor, if I'm going to honor them, those who may not be Christian, I need to be authentic about their religion. What's the difference between whitewashing history of labor and history of religion? And so they are some people that are very extreme. And I've had some pushback about that, about having Muslims to come. So if you know this history, it's incumbent upon you to be as accurate about giving those accounts. And so there's nothing that I'm going to do willingly or knowingly to injure, insult, or disrespect our ancestors ever again. And so if it is that they did not subscribe to Christianity, I can't make them a Christian in the grave. And so the best thing that I can do to honor them is to honor their religion. Let's talk about one of the goals of the Freedom Center. No long segue here. We're going to get right to it. The U word. Sometimes that's tossed about in an ethereal fashion. But since we're on planet Earth, honey, getting to the good stuff, whether it's joy, peace, cultivating patience, it can require a traipse or trudge through some rough thought territory. And it can require some hard mental work for folks who are willing to go there. Let's get to the U word. Unity. That's one of the goals of the Freedom Center. And I'm sure, you know, someone somewhere might say, well, you're raising all this ruckus and you wanted to get the bland deed to you. And, you know, (laughs) you're you're raising your voice and you're telling the people and you sound like... But... But unity, sometimes getting to the point of unity might be hard work. Yeah, 
it's it's foundational. So anytime you are disturbing, disrupting, redoing the foundation, it's always a lot of work, right? Mm -hmm. So it's heavy work and it's heavy lifting and it's work that nobody really wants to do. It's work where it costs the most, but it holds up everything. And so this work that I'm doing, yeah, it may ruffle some feathers. Yeah, it's going to cause us to reflect in a way that we've not been challenged to reflect before, but it is reshaping our foundation, which is going to make us a stronger nation. And so you invest in that. And so you find unity in a place where people are investing. We're even investing what we don't know. We're investing our hurts, our pains, and all of that. And so when we invest those things for the sake of unity, you're not going to find the fallout of upsetness that seems to follow some of this sort of work, you see? Mm -hmm. And so I, I also think that it is important who leads this work is as important as the work itself okay. so I'm not out here looking for a fight <laughs> you know that is not my goal the Bible says blessed are the peacemakers and so you know I very much want to make peace and so in areas where it's not necessary to fight I don't look for one areas that it is necessary to fight I look for the fight but I also make sure I bring that healing salve that bomb in Gilead. That bomb in Gilead is necessary. <laughs> that I'm sorry. Let me give it to you in plain English. That is, I'm sorry if it hurts you. I understand. It's devastating to me too. You know, it makes me uncomfortable too. I don't mind bringing that. Well, why is it that people want unity? They say they want unity, but then they don't want to go through. There's some pain here. And there are mm -hmm. things that need to be resolved or talked about, or at least, you know, even if there is, you can't necessarily come to an agreement, but you have to lay everything out on the table. It is not necessary for us to have agreement to have unity. Hmm. We could actually be unified even in our disagreement. We agree to disagree. So we're still unified, right? Mm -hmm. But what there can't be unity in is untruthfulness. There can be no unity in a lot. There just can't be unity in that. But they can always be unity if we disagree. Yeah. As long as the truth is being told. As long as the truth is being told. You may not understand the truth. You may not be willing to accept the truth. You may not be able to, as Gene Hackman say, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> right? right. But, but that as long as that doesn't turn into I hate you or you hate me because, you know, we're not willing to be truthful, you know, we can always have unity. And so unity follows this work because it's truthful work. When you look at primary source documents and you find the backup to everything that I've been saying, then it's hard to be disunified in this. Whether you want a woman to lead this work or not, you know, whether you want a black person to lead this work or not, you can't be disunified in the truth that is revealed through primary source documents. And that is my lead in force. Has anyone kind of gotten in your face because you're a woman leading this? Uh, yeah, I hear it a lot. I mean, but I think more so it is the same people that get in my face because I'm a woman pastor. So, oh, you know, okay. um, it is those same people types uh, that don't believe in women pastors, but you don't mind working for a woman CEO. You want that check to take care of your family. So, <laughs> you know. 
you know, so you, I disregard that. I don't, you know, it's not a problem. So yeah, sometimes you have people, but you realize those are the fringes and those are the people just that don't want to know the truth. And that's okay. That's fine. You know, keep your eyes focused on your assignment. A couple more things. So a lot of us are busy with our daily lives, but we're all making history in our own ways. So how can folks preserve history just right where they are for family's sake, you know, for the sake of preserving their family history now that things are so readily available to preserve history? So the first thing that you do is we have to start valuing our history. And so let's just talk you and I about African-Americans, right? Mm -hmm. So African-American, one of the reasons I realize more so than anything else, that there is a privileged component to preservation. I didn't realize that before. Mm -hmm. And there's also an economic component to preservation as well. And so when it is that you aren't stable, it's hard to keep up with your history. Right. It's hard to keep up with your heirlooms when you'll sell them for money. It's hard to keep up with your heirlooms when you've been put out of your place time and time again. And so historic preservation is also a matter of privilege. It really is. And it's true. Imagine keeping up with your birth certificate and the birth certificate of your ancestors if you've gotten put out or you've moved 10 times. Right. How many times have you moved, Liz? Uh, well, when I was a child, my parents are still in the same place where I was born. Okay. Um, so, but since I've been out here, I've moved, let's see, one, two. I hate moving because I, I just never grew up moving. Okay. So the chances that you'll be able to preserve history is great. That is great. So your parents being at the same place for that such a long time, you know, you'll be able to go into your parents' house and you'll be able to recover all of the things that you have from your childhood and whatever else they've kept. You can find that. But if you've moved 17 times, if you've moved, you know, so you get the picture with that. So right. things just left. get lost and they fall between the cracks. Exactly. Furniture, you know, get thrown away because it doesn't fit the new space and that sort of thing. So we lose our, a lot of our history is lost to that. So sometimes unity, it requires hard work. Sometimes unity means being okay with agreeing to disagree. So let's talk a little bit more about some other developments related to the Belmont Cemetery for the Enslaved. Pastor Michelle talks about historic markers throughout the county. In our county, less than 3% of historic markers are dedicated towards African-Americans. Yet in the 1800s, African-Americans made up over 30% of the population in Loudoun County. Wow. So literally, we built this county. This county was built, the wealth of this county was built on our backs. And only 3% of historic markers, actually less than 3% of historic markers record that. And so that is why the work of the Freedom Center is so important because we will uh, be the ones that will record, you know, our history and uh, make sure that we have those historic markers in place. When you come out to the to the ceremony, actually, it could be later this year, there's going to be a brown sign on uh, Harry Bird Highway. Get this. So Harry Bird Highway, the segregationist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Isn't that the... <laughs> 
the segregationist, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mass resistance movement leader. Um, because yeah, okay, don't even worry about that. But um, <laughs> so so you'll be on Harry Birdway coming up to Belmont, and you'll start seeing these brown historic signs. Oh, okay. These brown historic signs will tell you Belmont one half mile, Belmont one mile away. You know, the African-American burial ground for the enslaved at Belmont, you know, half a mile away. And I think that is fantastic because while people will forget who led that movement, they get those who led that work. Right. Wow. Yeah. So that historic marker, that brown sign that is going to be posted up in the next couple of months, it solidifies us forever. So let's wrap up today's podcast with this final stretch. Michelle C. Thomas is a pastor, honey, but don't get it twisted. Sister can laugh. So anyway, during our interview, I kept hearing wind in the background and folks talking in the background. So I asked Pastor Michelle what was up. Here's the final stretch with Michelle C. Thomas of the Loudoun Freedom Center. Quick question. Were you golfing when we were we were talking? Absolutely. <laughs> I said, I wonder, is she golfing? Okay, I'm going to put that into the intro. Absolutely. So you have to enjoy it. And we're on Raspberry Falls Golf Course, which was a former plantation as well. So, yeah, if we can can farm the plantation, we can play golf on it. You know what? (laughs) Truth. (laughs) And that's something. It wasn't too good for us to be on at the farm. So let's golf. Yes, yes. Let's golf. What's the point? Isn't that awesome? Isn't it though? Yeah. Oh, the thing, yes. I, old Jim would be happy, I think. Old Jim would be happy. <laughs> I'm taking advantage, full advantage of my citizenship. Our ancestors couldn't. And there is no part of my citizenship that I am not willing to explore and enjoy. Ooh, that's another word. Okay, we done had afternoon service too. <laughs> <laughs> we we about to go on a revival. Okay. It's true. I mean, think about it. Our ancestors couldn't enjoy their citizenship. They weren't bequeathed the citizenship. We have it. It is our right. Why should we limit ourselves to only the sections of citizenship that uh, someone wants us to have? Mm-hmm. We should enjoy our full citizenship. So our ancestors didn't come across these waters and survive these slave ships so that we could be limited. Think mm. about it. And so I should be able to do my interview and take a good swing and be successful <laughs> at both of them. Yes. yes. I love <laughs> Without it. feeling compromised, right? I love it. Absolutely. <laughs> Nothing that I got my Gatorade too. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> That was Pastor Michelle C. Thomas, pastor of Holy and Whole Life-Changing Ministries and founder of the Loud and Freedom Center. You can read more at planetnown.com. Please share this podcast with your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, on your social media feeds, and follow Planet Noun on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. And please, on Apple Podcasts, leave a rating. Please leave a rating, leave feedback there. I would really, really appreciate that. Thank you in advance. Thanks again for listening to Planet Now, people, places, things, and ideas. And until next time, take care.